Welcome to the ACID Science Podcast, the official podcast of the Association for Critical and Interdisciplinary Thinking. We are a global nonprofit organization dedicated to spreading education around artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and social change. In this podcast, we are hoping to provide insightful discussions with young professionals and world-leading researchers alike. I'm your host, Manuel Prenner, and now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Marcel Schliebs. Marcel, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having um, me. Yeah, just as a quick introduction of who you are, Marcel, you're pursuing your PhD in social or political data science at the Oxford Internet Institute, and you're working in the computational propaganda project. And to be honest, this is like one of the coolest sounding topics <laughs> I've encountered in recent years. And whenever I mentioned to friends, like previous to this recording, that I was going to record something with you, everyone was pretty excited about the topic. So no pressure, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, and, thank you. Me yeah. Too. <laughs> so the, your website uh, says that your research is located at the intersection of political science, statistics and computer science, and with a focus on elections and disinformation. I think there are many things we could talk about here. There was obviously just one month ago a huge historical election and 2020 has been intense in terms of global politics and American politics and just in general in terms of disinformation. So from from what I heard from you, you also had a pretty tight schedule and busy agenda considering there was so much like your already relevant topic of research became more and more relevant in, in, in this intense year 2020. And this kind of computational data-driven propaganda is a global ongoing issue. And the advances of technology also don't make it look like it's going away soon. So there is also a lot of like uh, future developments to talk about. But before we get into all of the details, we can maybe start out with some basic definition. So what is propaganda? What does it even mean and what does it mean to move towards like a computational version of it? Yeah, well, thank you very much for the introduction and having me. I'm really looking forward to speaking. Um, I think in general, um, the terms of computational propaganda, which which has also um, then um, been uh, the, the term after which our project has been named, um, we, we've been defining as misleading information um, and news that is created not only um, inadvertently or, or by, by back, background research by actors, but intentionally and in the service of some political interest. Um, and then this computational dimension that comes to it, um, and that can be um, both in, in the uh, purest sense algorithmically distributed content by, by automated accounts, but also by, by um, malign users who exploit the algorithms provided by tech platforms um, such as Facebook, Twitter, and many others um, to algorithmically distribute content um, to audiences worldwide uh, across social media networks. That, that wasn't too complex an introduction. <laughs> no, that's it's, it's perfect. Um, Yes, yeah, so you mentioned these these bad actors and this um, political dimension of, of the propaganda. So um, maybe we can just jump into the to the role these technologies play in the current political climate and 
maybe we can start with the US election because it's just so so present and maybe like take a look at a comparison between 2016 and 2020 maybe just start out with uh, what, what happened in 2016 with the Russian interference and in the election and how that played out in the recent election yes of course um, I think um, starting in in 2016 and making uh, the era to the 2020 election is actually a, a very good strategy to approach this because um, the 2016 election in the United States, which took place in, in November uh, and was directly following the Brexit referendum in, in the United Kingdom, of course, in, in earlier in the summer of that year, um, really marked the beginning of um, uh, more popular widespread attention to the problem or issue of um, computational propaganda or or um, foreign state-backed disinformation or 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 fake news as it as it's sometimes being called um, uh, across across the Western world um, and that it doesn't mean that 2016 was when this phenomenon first started to emerge or when it was invented and in fact you can trace um, strategies of propaganda back even thousands of years, and they were uh, incredibly present during the Cold War, for example, um, and then already started to emerge in in computational or algorithmic forms on social media um, in 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 earlier years of the last decade. Maybe um, they were definitely pivoted by Russian state actors in in other geopolitical contexts, such as domestic Russia, but also Ukraine. Um, in, in years before, around the uh, downing of MH17, etc. Um, and then what happened in 2016 was that um, Russian state-backed actors um, with support and backing um, has been established by, by um, multiple independent um, investigations, including the famous Mueller report, which had a whole edition on just the, the Russian in efforts to influence and interfere in the 2016 elections. Um, the Russian um, internet research agency located in 5050 uh, Savushkin Street in St. Petersburg, which was a really bureaucratic organization with a um, with a administratively looking um, office building, hundreds of people coming in every morning, uh, Eight or eight thirty or so to to do their nine nine to five job, um, were um, operating to influence uh, public opinion around the world and especially during that time um, in in the United States. So uh, when uh, looking at that, and some of my researcher colleagues, um, uh, including one of my supervisors, who later. Um, did an an investigation um, of uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram data of that Russian operation on behalf of the U.S. I believe Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, and many of my researchers and also um, government observers noted a mix of very interesting strategies that can be found in some of the, those early reports and also in the Mueller investigation. And to, to only highlight a few of those strategies, um, 
one interesting thing we observed was the Russian uh, agents, if you want to call them so, um, in St. Petersburg, setting up multiple um, Facebook groups, pages, accounts, profiles, all trying to resemble to be genuinely um, operated by genuine real Americans. And, and these uh, pages were scattered across all dimensions of different ideological spectrums. So you would have, for example, um, pages being set up both um, in uh, being like openly white supremacist and racist, and on the other hand, um, pages promoting um, racial causes in the name of African Americans, uh, racial equality, um, racial activism. You had um, pages for and against gun control, pages uh, related to immigration, to to other social issues such as um, abortion, social welfare policies, whatever. Um, and he, he saw some interesting strategies, including, for example, um, these um, race activism pages often being used to organize real-world protests, to uh, to call on the white supremacists to print, bring their guns and to um, to uh, opposing activists to come to the same place at the same time to create real world tensions and uproar. Um, some bizarre stories of uh, some bizarre uh, confirmed stories of um, Ameri real American middle aged citizens um, being convinced by by Russia uh, operatives to act as a to dress up as a. Uh, a as a Hillary Clinton double and and um, act uh, as as being drawn through a cage in in a protest with people shouting "lock her up," and um, these accounts also being used as something we call for something we called a strategic demobilization, and that means that um, you had accounts um, that had previously in the month before build up significant audiences of hundreds of thousands of um, American citizens, often African-Americans, behind these kind of black, uh, black Lives Matter, whatever pages. Um, these pages shortly before the election kind of swiftly but sharply turning around and, be, for example, promoting um, the idea that both candidates were corrupt and that voting either didn't matter or voting uh, for either of them was kind of wrong and trying to demobilize likely Hillary Clinton voters by kind of talking them uh, uh, talking them out of voting and and there's another very interesting um, example that that I might want to mention uh, as, as a last example um, of such a um, what, what researchers have described select payload tactic where a page is really like tr promoting a very specific cause um, again operated from St. Petersburg by a Russian state by actor and just before the election um, do a, doing a sharp turn to try to somewhat influence the vote so there was one Facebook page called Army of Jesus Facebook page which had um, at its spike uh, over 200,000 followers on or likers on Facebook. And just to give you an example, um, 
there is like on October 26th, the po uh, so about a week before the election, the page posted, um, there has never been a day when people did not walk with Jesus. Three, da three days later, October 29th, um, again, the page posting, I've got Jesus in my soul. It's the only way I know. Um, watching every move I make, guiding every step I take. Uh, another day later, rise and shine, realize his blessing. Another day later, October 31st, Jesus will always be by your side. Just reach out to him and you'll see. And then just another day later, in all caps, Hillary approves, approves the removal of God from the Pledge of Allegiance. <laughs> and then just another day later, starting again, like never hold anything tighter. So really like trying to build up a, a page in a long-term strategy and then just leveraging um, a, a couple of days before the election to 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 shout Hillary approves the removal of God at these 200,000 uh, followers. And it's some a set of really interesting strategies that were shown to to been able to to reach hundreds of millions of Americans uh, cumulatively uh, uh, over the course of that campaign. Yet it's still an important question and will probably never be fully resolved how large the effect in total actually was and whether it was enough to to significantly shape and 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 switch the outcome of the election which is an incredibly difficult um question for researchers to to address which we might talk a little bit about uh later but so much maybe for the background on 2016 um before before moving on to, to to what has happened since, and especially during the last months in 2020. Yeah, just one one thing that I also found interesting about this Army of Jesus group is that it's really systematically, they were really testing out a couple of different things that are a crucial part of American culture. I think that page originally started out as a Simpsons meme page or something in that direction. And when that didn't work, they moved onward to other things and then they found Jesus and then that seemed to work out really well. And that really, this is kind of the systematic approach behind that. I definitely agree. It's, it's systematic behind the Russian approach to do a lot of uh, trial error, both um, both qualitatively and also and also quantitatively. So these platforms these days allow you to do a lot of like tracking what content performs well, um, do a lot of like implicit A/B testing with different ads. The, the the Internet Research Agency was also highly active in um, back in 2016 in buying um, ads on Facebook uh, under a false name, but often in rubles. Um, to try to influence public opinion. And they certainly uh, employed these tactics there, not only on a global sense to to export tactics that, that used to work in Ukraine to the United States, but also within a country context to try out different things and, and see what works. Sometimes just trying out, throwing in different um, sorts of content on, on Reddit, for example, and then using the ones that work best on Twitter and Facebook afterwards and similar things. Yeah, I think the other important point is that, as you mentioned, it's it's really not a fringe phenomenon and it's not like a couple of, of trolls, but it's really a systematic operation that then went on to influence a election that was incredibly close in many ways. And talking about incredibly close elections, <laughs> I wanted to transition to the 2020 election that is still not fully over yet, I think, 
uh, hopes for the Trump team are slowly dwindling, but it was still an incredibly close election that kept us on the edge of our seats for a couple of days with waiting for the results in Nevada and Georgia and these states. So what role do you think did these kind of um, computational propaganda operations play in the 2020 election and was there a similar pattern to be observed? Yeah, um, so we have to note that we're still very much at the beginning of tr of trying to fully understand what, what happened and who was involved. Um, and if you look back at the, the time frame and context of 2016, if we go back and, and go into December of a month after the 2016 election, we didn't know anything of, of what we've just been talking about um, for another couple of weeks and months. So, so we're still kind of ahead of the discovery schedule of last time if you want so but we still were more vigilant uh during the whole process so know some things at least already um and those things that we know are are, are quite interesting so i think we went into this election with a huge pressure by both the public different political actors from different political sides in the united states on um both the government, but especially technology platforms, uh, including the big ones such as Facebook, Google, and YouTube, uh, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Google, especially through YouTube, um, to uh, th do better this time, to to be less uh, less vulnerable, to be more attentive, and to not miss something that significant uh, as in 2016. Uh, yet again, and um, when and and I find it incredibly hard to judge how well they did if if you if you ask the question like this, um, Facebook and others, but using the example of Facebook because I I know some people there that that I've spoken to uh, invested a lot in trying to do better this time against um, such foreign uh, disinformation uh, operations. Um, I've I've heard that some I think something like ninety not people or staff at Facebook but different teams in, within the whole company or something were working on um, securing uh, electoral processes and something like that during this election. So they've really invested um, a lot into making the selection safe to foreign sponsored. Um, attributable maybe disinformation stemming from places such as Russia. Um, and they've also cooperated, all platforms, um, all major platforms cooperated a lot with US law enforcement, um, the probably like would be people like FBI, NSA and others um, to, to, be, to be better at detecting such effort this time. Um, now that doesn't mean that <laughs> actors such as Russia haven't tried. We've had some operations that were um, discovered and revealed in the months leading up to the, to the elections, sometimes targeting the, the US more directly, sometimes targeting the Western world more in general. There was, um, for example, one um, that um, the people who uncovered it in a, in a report um, by Facebook in collaboration with with a social media um, uh, forensics company called Graphica called um, the 
Unlucky 13, um, which was a set of uh, 13, I think, false accounts, which which tried to promote one false news website that they set up called peacedata.org. And peacedata.org was an interesting operation because, um, and despite it, it was the fact that it was caught quite early, was trying to influence Western audiences more broadly in the US, but also, um, for example, in the United Kingdom by um, recruiting unwitting um, freelance journalists, um, in many cases, ex potentially exploiting um, the, the precarious situation um, that many freelance journalists faced um, when, when the pandemics uh, struck and 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 the, then the economy started to decline um recruiting them for a couple of dollars via pay, paypal to write articles critical of uh us or uk or, or others foreign policy um critical of um conservative politicians in the uk even critical of like the more um moderate left-wing or, or labor politician, uh, Keir Starmer, um, and, and kind of acting uh, as, as promoting uh, left-wing left causes. And that operation had a couple of interesting um, trademarks. It used AI-generated um, pictures that, that to, to create false accounts to kind of act as the editors of that outlet. But it didn't really have a big impact. It was really caught by, I think, actors, including Facebook and the FBI in a collaboration before it became uh, a big thing. But it shows that that actors, uh, malign actors uh, such as Russia, weren't totally inactive. But maybe um, to the degree that we know as of now, where uh, we were just better prepared against such threats this time. Now, what that meant in return, however, um, is probably that by the strong focus on on foreign threats, um, we simultaneously um, maybe focused too much on them and had a little blind eye on how much of a risk domestic or originating misinformation and and frankly like strategic disinformation um, would become in this election to, to maybe sum it up shortly you had a u.s pre a sitting u.s president in the white house who uh unsurprisingly sh showed tendencies not to accept the outcome of the election even um before it was taking place and not wanting to commit to its outcome. And, and I'm saying unsurprisingly here because really in 2016 already, when he won the election, um, he openly said that, um, he, he openly disputed the result and said, no, I won more because I won the popular vote as well by millions of votes. Um, and who before the 2016 election also wouldn't commit to accept the outcome except if he won. So it was really... Um, and I was doing a couple of interviews and um, but on election night and and the day before, um, and uh, and I'm really not proud of having exactly predicted what happened afterwards because it was it was so obvious and everyone was kind of talking about that fact that uh, in a in an election with an unprecedented pandemic, people very likely turning to mail-in voting um, in masses. 
But the president uh, calling on his own supporters not to use mail-in voting, um, which uh, which maybe they were in the beginning already less likely to, um, it was, uh, in combination with laws that, that prohibited the starting of counting of mail-in ballots before the election was over, it was totally predictable that Trump would have an early lead in, in many states early on, and that would gradually then starting to shrink um, when these mail-in ballots would come in. Um, the president had also been for months undermining the, the uh, credibility of mail-in voting, uh, suggesting on and on and on the, the, the possibility that uh, or the high likelihood in his in his eyes that they would be prone to to, to fraud, and that's how it unrolled. Uh, exactly all that that was totally predictable happened, and the president um, uh, employing his his predictable strategy was going out to this infamous news conference. I mean um, that that was so bizarre that it's still so kind of to some degree it surprised all of us. Um, saying he won, saying there was mass fraud, which then never could be proven afterwards, um, but which which he to the day continues to claim, and it's going to be going to be very interesting to to, to see what 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 long term effects that that will have, and and maybe we can also talk a little bit about um, the role of platforms, platform content moderation labeling in 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 this process and 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 why it's so much more difficult to deal with domestic misinformation compared to to foreign state sponsored operations yeah i think that's a really interesting and important point in general what role these platforms play i mean facebook and google have been and twitter have been in everybody's mouth and they they like especially our approach to them in the last four years maybe since as you said 2016 it dawned on everyone what kind of power these like internet tools can play in, in the outcomes of these elections and trump also using really targeted ads in 2016 and his, his campaign team really also closely collaborating with companies like facebook to to really personalize ads and to really personally uh, spread information or probably misinformation in a, in a really specific and and also like kind of um, yeah personalized way. So um, and it's it's kind of a, an interesting question in general how we should approach legislation for these big companies for data privacy rights and what kind of roles they should take with respect to also in like as you said. Um, internal misinformation campaigns. So what has been kind of shifting, what has been happening with respect to legislation of these companies, maybe in the last four years or more specifically leading up to the election? On Yeah, um, legislation is a very uh, complex issue, especially in the United States where where free speech is, is a uh, very high valued and even constitutionally protected very highly protected protected value but before maybe moving to concrete measures of of potential uh, legislation and 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 um what maybe could be done despite the stalemate um that that the highly polarized us political system may be in if we continue to have a republican senate um it's maybe interesting to look at what actually the companies did um, during this election and and how how existing research 
suggests how effective these these measures may be. Um, so as I had described, the the platforms were preparing for um, something that internally they they have often called a so-called October surprise. They had been really worried. Um, watching the information space over the summer, that something would come out shortly before the election in October, um, likely maybe in in one of the last weeks of October, um, that would um, totally shift the debate, sh totally shift the discussion um, in, in, in a malign way. And in a, in a way, in 2016, that equivalent of the October surprise um, could be the... Um, the dumped, leaked, or, or hacked Hillary Clinton emails to, to WikiLeaks that were released and then that really triggered even a, a measurable shift of public opinion also in, in favor of Trump and highly declined Hillary Clinton's trustworthiness, trustworthiness um, ratings, um, which by many American uh, political uh, science and, and elections scholars have have been suggested to be very influential for election uh, presidential election choices, these trustworthiness ratings. So they were waiting for this October surprise and they kind of uh, shook when they thought they saw a sign of one coming when this um, whole Hunter Biden laptop uh, leak thing uh, arose a couple of weeks before the election, shortly before, before the last debate, I believe. Um, and and they took a very different approach each of these tech platforms so on uh, on facebook you had um the response of of the platform um directly um not banning the content all or outright but um algorithmically slowing it down to to hinder its viral spread um at least until its fact checkers would have enough time to to go over it and maybe decide on an appropriate label. So, so kind of um, to take the, the turn the algorithmic screw to, to, to slow down the spread a little bit. Twitter um, was much more invasive and interventionist and really kind of took the almost nuclear option of um, uh, quickly, not only um, slowing the spread algorithmically, but um, to, to, uh, for some for some time um, hit block users from being able to share that that New York Post article um, introducing the Hunter laptop story, um, even blocking profiles of people who still were trying to share it some way and so on. So re becoming like extremely interventionist. And and thirdly, maybe the third big platform, YouTube. Um, didn't really do anything and and probably was just kind of hoping most people would just focus on Facebook and Twitter and forget there's YouTube. Um, and it's also interesting to see what happened next because obviously um, there was a huge backlash from any criticism from um, Trump supporters and from 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 members of the Republican Party and, and the Trump camp who accused Twitter of um, an information operation of itself accused Twitter of uh, interfering, of tech platform interfering, um, using 
strong language, including things like it's the American people who decide to, or who have the decision to choose their president. Not we're not run by tech platforms, etc. And and I think this background of of the October reaction and and the huge backlash to 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 Twitter has to be um, also be included as a context for understanding how the platforms then reacted once Trump started to unleash his uh, in, his incredible lying campaign the days after the campaign. Because then we still saw from YouTube high levels of um, reluctance to, to intervene. Um, eventually, I think putting up some labels, but them being very broad about the disputedness of the results, etc. Um, Twitter famously... Um, putting labels but being really incoherent and switching back and forth between the actual uh wording of them sometimes saying just like other peoples have claimed this is different sometimes saying this is wrong sometimes saying biden won sometimes now back switching to something like this is disputed so really uh a, a little bit of an inconsistent back and forth and facebook i think being um even a little bit less inv in, invasive and 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 just adding some um, more general election information boxes or links or something like that um, and and the question is really for tech platforms and also uh, regulation to how to deal with that because um, while many um, uh, Trump supporters or Republicans would say what is happening is already interference and way too much. Um, obviously, people from the other side of the camp may say this is by far not enough that these people are leaving content on there, that they're not deleting it, that they're not um, being strong enough in saying this is absolute bullshit and lying. Yet, on the other hand, um, these platforms also kind of have to navigate um, a delicate balancing act, um, not only legally between kind of protecting freedom of speech, protecting, um, on the other hand, elections and their integrity, but also navigating um, the outflux of users to other more fringe platforms. And we've seen that in, in the US case, for example, with many people migrating to that new a dedicated free speech platform called Parler or Parler, um, whatever pronunciation you prefer, where where the platform explicitly advertises on the notion of not censoring, not intervening in content so much such as Twitter and others, um, and and which start to become a viable alternative to many, at least right wing Americans. Um, and the question both as a tech company, obviously with a business model, but also kind of more a, as a regulator and, and designer of policies, where we have to ask ourselves the question, um, uh, how much do we want to uh, regulate these big platforms if the consequences is losing a, uh, not only a fringe part of the population, but a large amount to platforms that that are totally out of control and and deliberately trying to give platform to conspiracy theorists to uh, to 
anti-vaccination groups and other things. So it's a very difficult balancing act. And I'm very happy to still be a doctoral student to be able to philosophize about all of this and not having to make actual decisions um, uh, as the responsible policymaker. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, it, to just put this a bit into a perspective of like the, the, the landscape of the American debate, because free speech is such a crucial ingredient of, of what makes America, America, that there like a couple of years back when ISIS was really um, big on the news, the original debate about, around the censorship was really what precedents do we set if we start censoring ISIS on Twitter or if we take off these ISIS videos from YouTube. So there, there was this, really this focus on free speech was so large that like really videos of beheadings, for example, it was debated if it's, it doesn't violate like the, the foundation of free speech in, in America to, to start taking these things down. And in, in that case, it's pretty obvious that that's kind of nonsense and that the tech companies should act and should censor this kind of content. But when you move on to, to more political questions and controversial figures on the right, I mean, like the, this alt-right, or some kind of famous public figures such as Milo or Alex Jones being deplatformed, and a lot of people saying that this is kind of a clear indication of, of the social media companies taking on like a political stance and really yeah, taking action against a certain camp and kind of in this divide of, of the American society between left, between Democrats and Republicans, really obviously taking the side of the Republicans and uh, of the Democrats and that obviously participating to the kind of um, this idea that um, all media platforms are owned by some kind of establishment and that then as you, as you mentioned, the the uh, like the other half of the country having to to find new platforms and then this kind of echo chamber effect becoming stronger and stronger because there's literally no overlap anymore in this virtual spaces between one side and the other side absolutely yes and maybe to quickly add to that um but we also shouldn't forget when thinking about dreams of regulating these these in the liberation spaces and communication spaces and and i'm not saying this as taking a position in one direction i really don't have the the gold solution yet um but what we shouldn't forget is that and and empirical studies by by my colleagues show that um that um the use of disinformation and and computational propaganda is is uh, very salient and and being done in Western democracies, but on the other hand, um, Western democracies are by far the minority of countries in the world. And if we look at the use of computational propaganda around the globe, we see that the that the majority, even probably, of use cases is non democratic, uh, often authoritarian countries where these tactics are employed by governments against their opponents, against ordinary citizens, against opposition, um, where, where there's a mix of online harassment through computational tactics combined with, with the spread of propaganda and pro-regime false information. And if we think of a gold standard model where, where the government is becoming more and more interventionist and, um, and the, becoming the so-called arbiter of the truth, um, 
Uh, that's true, of course, truly worrying on a global perspective. And and I, I'm although I also always end up studying the high attention um, Western democracies in the end because there's so much attention, frankly, on it because there's more data available because I'm more familiar with the language, etc. And simply, I'm I'm just very very young, just starting a degree, and I'm hoping to move to other contexts as well. Um, it has to be noted and and remembered again and again that the really vast majority of people being subjected to um, propaganda online worldwide are not living in Western democracies and are living in 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 regimes where we wouldn't want the government to have any say in in how to orbit uh, the truth or evaluate propaganda. So um, now I was I was planning to to move onwards to conspiracy theories around COVID-19 and vaccination strategies with a focus on <laughs> misinformation in European countries and non-English speaking countries <laughs> to at least get away from the US that guests usually got, it was eating up like all of the attention that the world had for the last four years, or it feels like that. But now, yeah, moving on maybe to that more global perspective of not only Russia being involved in the US, but other countries, other regimes being involved in other countries like European countries, for example. So maybe we can we can move to like anti-vax um, sure. communication or conspiracy theories around COVID-19 and what kind of agendas could be behind that and which countries are involved. Yeah. Sure. Um, so COVID-19 was an interesting phenomenon because um, when when it first really started to spread in in around say March and the following months in Europe, um, it was kind of the only topic of really of public attention almost by and by far worldwide um, and and in Europe in particular. So obviously it was a prime um, prime target um, for different all different actors all different forms of actors to target and pursue their domestic and geopolitical goals by communicating about about covid um i'm gonna start maybe because they're often the ones that uh are the most spectacular operations and 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 um eye-catching ones with with uh, state-backed efforts maybe by Maybe by a little bit of Russia again, China, but also others like Iran, um, how, how they were trying to not influence their own audiences, but global audiences, and then talk a little bit, a little bit about um, other forms of conspiracy theorists um, trying to to exploit the exploit the situation. So um, when the pandemic was quickly spreading to, to Europe and other parts of the world, we saw an interesting um, strategy by state actors um, from the countries I named to try to influence public opinion really on a global scale and in multiple languages. So at many people, even in, 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 in and myself until quite recently, uh, and many other people in, in my home country of Germany don't know is that, um, in fact, many Chinese state-controlled um, propaganda outlets—you can really call them like that—that that, are, that, that is um, media outlets such as a news agency, um, Xinhua, such as a newspaper, the People's Daily, 
um, in, uh, or a radio station, China Radio International, um, that are often not only funded by the government, by, but directly editorially controlled by the government, or even often, uh, in many cases, the party itself. So, for example, the German version of the, the People's Daily uh, is a German language edition of the official Communist Party of China newspaper um, that edited by, by by the party. And it operates in, in, in German and publishes uh, Chinese state propaganda in German and to reach German audiences. Now, I don't want to make any judgment of how successful that is, and I think it's, it's uh, a still pretty fringe operation, but these um, editions that uh, that the Chinese or Russian uh, outlets have, especially in other languages such as English, of course, but French, Spanish, usually Arabic, um, have high uh, levels of audiences in 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 other countries such as Latin America, such as Africa, um, and to some degree maybe also in Europe. And what these um, outlets did is. Um, when the pandemic unrolled is is to disseminate information that was in in many ways in line with the overarching um, Russian Chinese or Iranian uh, geopolitical uh, narratives and interests. So when we did a study of these both quantitative and qualitatively in April and June in different languages, we found broadly the um, different outlets to employ three to four different narratives and strategies. So first, and and especially early in the beginning, there was a a propaganda effort in promoting Russian or Chinese aid delivered to countries across Europe, including Spain, Italy, UK, then also other countries such as Serbia and later Africa, Latin America, etc. That just showed how. On the one hand, um, the Chinese or Russian government were there to help when needed, were there not only in isolation, but were there instead of uh, someone else who did not take the role of so-called global leadership against the virus, and especially alluding to the European Union in Europe, um, directly contrasting um, cases in Italy where where, where they were saying, look, the, the EU uh, let you down and now China, China or Russia coming to your help. Rumors of Russian uh, state media paying ordinary Italians a certain amount of euros to to thank Russia on camera. One, uh, uh, one Italian businessman um, posing for the for the Russian uh, Russia Today of RT journalists taking down his EU flag in in his company and replacing it by a Russian flag. <laughs> it was all about kind of presenting them as the benevolent saviors and and directly contrasting that to the other governance system that in parenthesis failed. So that kind of the second narrative that was linked and, and connected to that was to depict democracy as an inferior governance model that, that was weak in times of in, in times of pandemic. Um, and that was and that was not able to protect its citizens efficiently um, because of its inherent uh, uh, weakness and, and and missing strongness of of a central institution of, of power, um, and and these propagandists 
theories trying to weaken uh, the validity in, uh, of democracy, frankly, often and sometimes used real examples from Western countries um, where governments did make mistakes such as, such as everywhere in the world where, where governments were trying to fight the pandemic, but where the free press exposed it and, and they were the part of the public debate. Um, and um, and that, that was kind of two important narratives. Then there was um, one about kind of a little bit less controversial, maybe about um, the the own response of the countries, probably involving still a lot of censorship, saying how well China feared with everything, how how quickly they eliminated all of the virus there, and in Russia the same thing, and uh, bizarrely also in Iran, which had record numbers at that time, but still claimed to um, to have uh, fought the virus much better than everywhere else in the world with some magic machines and and medicines. Um, and and last but not least, um, uh, the spreading of conspiracy theories or providing a platform to people uh, trying to convey conspiracy theories. So in the ca case of Chinese outlets, they one of the early narratives they were trying to push was to question the origin of the virus being being in China in Wuhan. Um, so they would, for example never kind of editorially write a report saying the virus didn't originate in Wuhan. But what they did in a set is they um, either printed or published um, op-eds by, um, by seemingly independent uh, people, but which, which looked like genuine articles, um, raising questions about the origin, saying... Um, Maybe the virus was imported by the CIA or by the U.S. military to Wuhan. Um, that was then followed by a, a series of reports around uh, alleged U.S. military biolaboratories around the world and raising questions why they're doing viral experiments there and if the virus maybe came from the U.S. biolab. And similar, kind of the biolab was one central overarching theme that that united Russian and Iranian outlets as well, who also heavily, quote, ask questions about US biolaboratories around the world um, in relation to the potential origin of the virus. I mean, in the Chinese case, that continued for months afterwards, um, not only talking about biolabs, but also um, every once in a while finding someone who would question whether the virus had already originated somewhere else sometime earlier finding some mayor from New Jersey who was really sure that his fever back in November 2019 was definitely COVID, misquoting some doctor in Italy who said that there was a strong flu um, also earlier in Italy and so on. Um, but these state actors really trying to, to exploit these narratives for their purposes. And maybe one last example of a clear evidence of Chinese state-controlled media employing outright uh, fabrication of content um, was the publication of a video which was heavily promoted also by Chinese diplomats on Twitter, uh, claiming to show Italians playing the Chinese anthem from their balconies in Rome and shouting <laughs> Grazie China um, for their benevolent help, which was later shot to be like 
uh, editorially um, edited and and fabricated. And in fact, I think neither the anthem was played nor did someone shout "Grazie, Kina" at that specific moment. Um, yeah, I think that it's a really a good moment to maybe try to disseminate in a bit more detail what the different agendas behind these all of these tactics are. Because on the one hand, you have in, in Russia the IRA inferring, interfering with the US election and really having that pretty obviously implicit goal, as, as you mentioned in the previous examples, of um, creating tribalism and kind of creating civil unrest within the US and really destabilizing the Western democracies. But on the other hand, you have maybe in China or from Turkey or the Iranian perspective, kind of the, this interest of um, also spreading division and, and making the West look weak, but in the same way also kind of promoting their own regime in China's case to divert blame that the US were, were pretty obviously giving them for, for causing that pandemic and for being unable to control it in the early phases. So what do you think are kind of the core motivations be behind this these um, propaganda campaigns and maybe also moving to towards anti-vax um, propaganda and kind of these conspiracy theories yes. is it more like from a promotional perspective or more spreading division or both um great questions and great points um i think in the past Yes, and sometimes maybe overly we focused on electoral processes and short-term goals of propaganda when um, when studying and reporting on these things, simply because elections are such high media attention events. Um, yet I think in most of the cases, for most of the countries you've mentioned, the strategies they have include short-term elements but are much more long-term and, um, and have as a long-term goal the undermining and, and discrediting of Western, Western alternative models of governance of, of democratic um, rule of law and democratic systems. And, and for different motives, probably, I mean, we would go very deep into, into international relations here and, and maybe have to do it, have to make it a bit shortly. But um, if you think about why, Uh, authoritarian regimes such as Russia or China would have an interest in in um, discrediting uh, Western system of of governance. Um, then, obviously, to to weaken them as their geopolitical competitors, to um, to support maybe oppositional forces in these respective countries, but also, um, and in the end, it always boils down kind of to a large degree to to that aspect also to ensure re regime survival of these regimes themselves in their respective countries because if they're able to to show how weak the their systemic if you want so competitors are in dealing with uh different problems it also um helps them defend against potential uh threats to their to their own uh legitimacy and and in in years long before all this happened in in the early 2010s we've already seen russian and chinese outlets for example reporting on every little protest um of youth in paris in paris putting a, a few cars on fire or something like that as a huge geopolitical event um always trying to kind of promote this notion of of how of how weak 
liberal democracies are in 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 protecting security and and things like that so i think really uh, we have to take into account and remember that it's it's both short and long-termish strategies that are that are at play here uh, for these countries now maybe moving to to anti-vaccination um myth and disinformation very interesting and and large topic and we also are just starting and are continuing to 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 do more research on that um here you have a very interesting intersection and an example of an intersection between foreign state actors trying to manipulate opinion in the uh, public opinion and attitudes in the west um, and then intersecting with domestic actors um and domestic conspiracy theorists because you have a large community of um uh, and and very diverse community. We always sometimes say jokingly, um, including both ver- like uh, liberals, yoga moms, as well as um, uh, radical uh, government critics and 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 uh, gun lovers in, in the United States, who are all highly critical of the uh, of 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 vaccinations and and the government's role in them. Um, and who include really the kind of unwitting, truly skeptic individuals who are, who are who who have um, who have genuine fears that not in the sense that that I judge them as genuine, but kind of pr- in in terms of process arise as a sort of um, information uh, result of an information process that where they are influenced by by content where they're influenced by peers. Um, but we don't only have these unwitting in individuals, but we have a whole industry that kind of commercializes anti-vaccinism, um, that monetizes it well, is it through ads, through selling alternative medicine products, etc., online and, and a real like commercial side to it. And then we have foreign state actors such as such as Russia with a proven record and there's like peer-reviewed academic publications on that as well, um, who who have been shown to use uh, false accounts or, or, if you want, so troll accounts online to promote anti-vaccination um, um, narratives in Western countries to to maybe weaken uh, trust in in government. To you probably have to allege them as well of at least risking of undermining public health. And and who continue to do so during this pandemic, both to um, maybe play to this general notion that I described of undermining trust in the government and public health, but interestingly this time also because they are in a direct competition with their Sputnik vaccine, um, maybe not so in European markets where it's unlikely that we'll have a high penetration of the Russian vaccine. Um, but much more realistically in, in other global contexts such as Asia, um, India, Arabic countries, Latin America, etc., where Russia seems to be really keen to, to export their vaccine to and where um, content that, we've, that we're seeing thousands of articles by, um, by different language editions of Russian uh, outlets um, promoting the brilliant effectiveness of their own vaccine and reporting on complications, rumors, and other things about Western vaccines um, might be directed at supporting these efforts. 
mean, isn't the vaccine, the Russian vaccine also called Sputnik V or something? So kind of yes, obviously yeah, carrying right. that undertones of Cold War <laughs> propaganda. Or like that, uh, Yeah, definitely has to be regarded in that sense as well. Um, like something where we we brushed across a couple of times already in this conversation is how the technological developments and the, the shifts in technological landscape have in, in many ways facilitated this um, on ongoing like, propaganda machinery that is being put in place by by these different global players. So uh, as you mentioned, maybe also in the 2000s and the 2010s, there was a lot of kind of attempts or pre like maybe premature attempts to to create this kind of influence on the on the Western world. But the success of the last couple of years have shown that really the the technologies that were needed are these kind of social networks, this kind of easy distribution of spread of information online. So what has kind of changed and maybe to, to look a bit into the future, you mentioned the example of these Italian people allegedly shouting thanks China and this video material not being real. What kind of um, influence will these fake media play in further kind of decoupling these virtual spaces in which information is transferred from any kind of substantial reality? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And and unfortunately, I think the, the result of making that thought will be quite pessimistic or, or, or dark, at, at least on, on, on the first uh, hand. So... Um, Going a step back and, and thinking about the role of uh, that that social media and digital um, communication played for this, I think we're now at a point um, in in history where something some parts are very similar to um, say maybe the post Second World War period, and some parts are fundamentally different. And what's similar is that also after the Second World War. We were um, we were just uh, coming out of a devastating war. Obviously, um, we were uh, start. We were just out of a, a clash of uh, two fundamentally different systems: fascism and and liberal democracy. Um, on the other hand, uh, experiencing the rise of of Soviet communism. So I really like a, 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 a clash of global systems um, and, uh, and a starting to focus on um, media effects and trying to explain why people had different um, political opinions, if you want. So, so people started to really focus on the question of um, why did people differ in their ideology and why did different ideologies arise both like on the global uh, perspective of these different uh, systems but also also internally and kind of the the early hypothesis of feeling that many people had um was to um kind of directly assume that media consumption and 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 the different forms of information that people consume have a large role on 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 political attitudes and and political ideology and that's somewhat understandable because as an individual obviously i have my convictions and ideas and i believe that they are the result of a lot of 
uh, rational deliberation and weighing of arguments, etc. Yet I see many people around me having other opinions, both um, globally as well as within my own systems. And I'm obviously looking to to find potential explanations why this might be the case. And and with people implicitly believing they're right, um, and the others just being humans as well. Um, explaining or blaming it away on their media consumption and saying, look, it has to be kind of the information they consume that leads them to this entirely different conclusion is something um, that sounds logical and um, leads people to believe that um, per se um, media effects on individual have to be highly impactful. And we can maybe talk a little bit if we have time left in the end about how science can can measure these things. But we had uh, this ev kind of first evolving of focus on propaganda, on media effects, etc. Yet um, we were in a highly uh, analog system and we didn't have digital uh, communication spaces, echo chambers, um, social media networks where people could, could communicate. I think in that first dimension, we're now um, on a very similar situation actually to where we were before the uh, where we were after the Second World War. We again have kind of the end of a few years of very consensual politics, where we um, had um, kind of both in the in the global dimension and in many Western countries. Um, liberal, mainstream, central elites dem dominating the political spectrum in the 1990s and 2000s, um, centrist, mainstream uh, elites, if you want, so also um, in charge of, of major media organizations, academia, etc. Um, and and uh, ha having what, what many perceived as a quite healthy information environment. Um, yet with the end of this consensual uh, tenant, consensual model of politics and the uh, rising of populism, of, um, of right-wing um, uh, right populism, as well as some left-wing uh, populism tendencies across Europe as well, with like Mélenchon in France and, and 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 maybe to a small degree also Corbyn in the UK, etc. Um, we again find ourselves at a very contested point ideologically in in political debates, and then therefore again uh, in information spaces and different forms how people communicate are again uh, central to to trying to understand these differences. Now the huge difference this time, however. And here we're less similar to the situation from after the Second World War. Now we have these communication infrastructures that are often per se almost <laughs> perfectly designed to amplify such divisions, to um, to leverage human psychological uh, uh, traits and psychological biases to to. Uh, strengthen and and evolve such dynamics. So, for example, um, I think some someone uh, previously has called I think the internet and social media the largest 
machine of confirmation bias in the history of humankind or something like that. We have we have we have yeah. some we have a structure where people can selectively consume information where algorithms recommend them what they believe they would want to see anyways, um, which obviously uh, confirms and strengthens political biases further. We have um, conformity bias where people are um, conformed in their beliefs by by peers around them in in inoculated spaces having similar opinions. And we have a situation, maybe as a last point, to make where it's much easier to both in an incredibly cheap way, as well as with high levels of deniability and plausible deniability for different actors to rely on inauthentic versions of such forms of communication to use um, f falsely operated under wrong name and, and false identities accounts often with inauthentic um, or algorithmic dissemination and to do so with deniability and, and cheaply. And this whole mix um, has made it already really explosive um, uh, to, to create a large effect here. Um, and, and unfortunately, if we look into the future in a second, we'll see that um, uh, the technological trends as they're happening at the moment are likely, at least for some time, not going into, into the right direction to help us there. Yeah, and I think there has been kind of some awakening, especially in the Western world, with respect to the power these technologies have and this kind of potentially harmful influence they have on our lives. And movies like The Social Dilemma, this Netflix documentary by Tristan Harris has been pretty popular and a couple of keywords like surveillance capitalism, this critique by Shoshana Tsuboff on, on this current system which we are having where really these big companies intentionally make us addicted to these technologies and then we are kind of sucked in substantial amounts of our day we are sucked into these technologies and within these technologies they create these really kind of personalized information spaces that really are supposed not to to show us any kind of truth or any kind of meaningful engagement but really to clue us to the screens and to not even drive us away from them by showing us some kind of controversial content, but really creating this bubble of confirmation bias and conformity, as, as you mentioned. And there seems to be this kind of awakening of, of conscience around this, or at least we, we are starting as a society to be more aware of these issues. But looking to the future, there's also a couple of threats on the horizon with deepfake media, for example. So can you comment on how this might be developing and the, kind of this, this struggle between us becoming aware of the risks of these technologies, but the increasing power of these technologies making it more and more difficult to to really counter them? Yes, definitely. Um, I, I, I personally believe that the risk of, of deepfakes in, in this whole issues that, that we've touched upon uh, today is, is really large uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, if we look back a couple of years, um, and maybe the the uh, the very far back to the to the uh, propaganda in the Soviet Union, you already there saw uh, when the Great Purges started, and and uh, uh, Stalin, I think Stalin's um, 
KGB em employing a whole unit of image forgers um, to try to uh, to forge images of him being on photos with people who, who he later purged and 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 eliminated um, to kind of uh, fix history in a way, if you want. So, um, and this this technique and possibility to realistically fake photo images was then later um, later democratized, if you want. So uh, through the rise of 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 Photoshop and. Um, has led to a maybe process where we are today aware that static photo images alone um, aren't a 100% uncritical um, proof of anything that they show on them um, and that we have some sort of um, level of skeptic skepticism um, learned by now that we know all right this image may be forged or faked with photoshop yet i don't think that we have such a criticism yet um with regards to video or audio evidence we still have um video footage or or audio images that that um influence global events that are perceived to to a large degree as 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 credible and objective evidence, you'd have the 2016 election with the with the Trump audio tape where he was talking about like the grabbing women by the pussy thing. Um, but uh, across all other different uh, uh, geopolitical contexts, videos taken by individuals on their cell phones um, still exert uh, a lot of uh, power because they uh, have kind of brought the power of bringing the truth to the world, to the individual on its cell phone in, 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 in their pocket, uh, wherever they may be in, in some place. Um, yet there's still remaining trust in audiovisual evidence in, in some sort is kind of, um, it, it is at odds with the sharp and quick progress we're seeing in the area of artificial intelligence that, that is using, um, generative adversarial networks and other um, other artificial intelligence methods to create videos of um, of people speaking with the faces of others for example or creating videos of world leaders um, saying things with with a very realistic sounding voice as well that they haven't said at all and ever um, and, and that these techniques are for a variety of reasons, but especially for a couple of technical reasons that would be too detailed to go in, into at depth here. Um, but through the mere structure of how these models are work, work and are trained um, are getting better and better very quickly and, and, and also in an arms race with people trying to detect them. Um, we get to a situation where very soon, I believe, um, it will be possible to to uh, fake an an audiovisual uh, representation. So, for example, a video of of a person saying something that will be almost indistinguishable, at least by human eyes, from um, from truly that person saying saying it. And I'm I'm, I'm rather thinking at uh, single figure digits, like. Five, three or five years rather than 20 here until we reach that point, um, which 
if we think through the consequences, would um, erode trust in another uh, so far considered objective level of audiovisual content and, and pursue not only um, the ability of people to fake um, false information, but probably as much uh, as that also to for people who have actually said something or committed something to provide them a plausible pathway of deniability to deny what they've done. And I'm 100% sure if if the Trump 2016 audio tape had happened in 2026, he would totally have declined having ever said that and just said it's a fake, fake recording um, and declined that. And we've already seen cases around the world where such forms of deniability are, are being are being used with claiming that something is an early version of of a deep fake video or audio recording um, and then we also in addition to that have have AI generated text and text models um, but uh, maybe before moving to that um, can shortly continue on on deep fakes a little bit more yeah um I think deepfakes, we, we mentioned in a previous podcast already, kind of this issue between uh, behind adversarial learning with these generative adversarial networks, where really the AI architecture itself kind of makes it really easy to incorporate um, methods that you develop for detecting fakes. You can just basically then use that method you develop to detect a fake to train your model to, to improve the quality of your model and and make it generate data yeah. that you can't it, detect fakes with anymore so it's it's kind of the perfect um foundation for an arms race of deep fake detectors exactly exactly it's it's exactly what i call it it's the perfect most purest form of a of a zero sum arms race um because literally these within these generators, um, the, the generator and the discriminator are operating in a serious sums arms race, trying to teach each other to get better. Um, and and unfortunately, this also means that whenever we develop uh, technology to try to better detect such such images, we also might be helping helping them to get more realistic and 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 even get better than than. A human guessing uh, by chance. Yeah, maybe a somewhat speculative question, but I don't know if you have any data or any perspective on that. But it seems to me that there's this kind of generational shift. There's this kind of cliche of these boomers on the internet not being really aware of that there could be falsehoods in the internet and there could be lies on the internet and just having a more naive approach to, towards um, certain kinds of media because people grew up in in eras where there was like media was more reliable in a way and then could you imagine that there's this kind of shift of younger generation being more critical when it comes to what kind of media they they put their faith in and then the generation after us just for them it being completely commonplace that no digital media necessarily bears any resemblance to reality um i i understand the argument, and there's an argument to be made. Um, I think some empirical studies of the 2016 election in the U.S., for example, showed that uh, older individuals were more more likely to share false information or something like that. 
on Facebook and there's obviously a generational gap and, and younger generations using other platforms. Um, but I, I, I am, would be far from uh, hoping that the generational shift alone will be anything close to enough to solve the problem for not only technical reasons, but simply for because the shift that that I've seen and and the instances where I've heard, um, for example, heavy uh, both heavy Trump supporters as well as anti-vaccine critics in Europe, in Germany, and other places talk about, is that they are not really my I, my understanding is not really searching for um, objective truth and kind of coming to an epistemological. Um, back to an epistemological situation as in the past where people always disagreed politically. That's kind of the core is a sense of democracies, right? But where both sides had an epistemological shared mutual foundation of how to come to objective truth from observation and facts. Um, and, and, I, and I fear that this is to some degree already gone gone with many people who don't actually try to find the most accurate and objective information but who are so deeply embedded in into their respective worldviews and ideological biases that that um even if there's a fact check a clear fact check um that it won't matter to them but they say look um um the fact checks are biased too or that they're only fact checking the conservative Trump sides or their, or maybe this video of Biden falling asleep on TV was fake, but quote, I wouldn't doubt that it would happen. So it really doesn't matter, um, etc. So I, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't put too much hope into, into the pure technological abilities of, of the next generation to solve all of this. Yeah. I, I unfortunately agree with this. Yeah not having too much hope in our cognitive abilities. I mean, we are human brains after all, and we, we've come through a long process of evolution and there's only like a certain degree of how much we can mold just by shifting environments. I mean, there's much we can learn, but I, I think we still have kind of this reality bias towards media and believing what we read in text and believing what we see. If we see a video of something happening, it's really, we can rationally decide that it's fake but it's still hard to get that impression out of our heads. I mean, we, we also watch Hollywood movies and we can kind of detach, but it's still something that leaves an emotional trace. And especially if we're exposed to these contents repeatedly many times, there's repetition bias, then there's um, kind of a an effect where, I forgot what it's exactly called, but that very often people remember a certain fact that they read somewhere but forgot where they know it from or where they read it and that's often also really dangerous if that source of course was was a not so trustworthy one but you just remember you oh, i've seen i've heard or seen this somewhere but don't remember where it exactly was yeah there's i think there's a lot of things to to still talk about with respect to that but maybe we can move towards more methodological questions because it's also kind of interesting how you actually do the research you do and what kind of data-driven statistical methods you use and develop to to kind of understand what is happening in this in this climate and in this landscape of computational propaganda 
Yeah. Yeah. So what what is it you are developing, or how how do you collect your data and evaluate your data? Yeah. So it's the 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 subject we're studying is a big methodological uh, challenge for many reasons, um, but it's also a challenge that that's interesting to take on. So I'm primarily interested in in the effects that exposure to, to such different forms of uh, unhealthy information, if you want so online, um, has on on individuals' attitudes and political behaviors. So uh, so beyond trying to measure how much there is out there or how much a Russian troll tweeted, trying to really understand what's the effect on individuals consuming that content. And I think this is, is of, of course, always you think that your research is important, but I want to make the argument that uh, this question of impact is core to the whole field because not only um, is it um, the direct effects that that impact our everyday life and and the future of our democratic system but also that should um inform the delicate balancing act that we've talked about earlier for tech platforms and governments about how much to regulate how much to um to risk interfering with individual liberties and freedom of speech in order to to protect uh democratic elections and democratic decision-making, right? Um, so it's really important to, to inform that delicate, to calibrate kind of that delicate balancing act with um, scientific information about how consequential the effects are really. Um, and now trying to measure that is unfortunately really difficult for a couple of reasons. First, it's inherently difficult to measure how many people are being exposed to different forms of content at all. In the past, um, researchers faced with that problem that this information was locked in the corporate um, corporate secret uh, drawer of, of Facebook, Twitter, and others of how many people are actually exposed to some sort of content, always used certain proxies such as the likes of a post or the amount it has been shared to try to infer from that how many people have actually seen it. But it was really always just very broad and, and unsecure estimations of, of the actual levels of exposure. And we're seeing some first um, approaches towards getting beyond that. These include um, an, initi an initiative by Facebook that, that we also may cooperate with in the future that try to provide such exposure data to researchers, but it's evolving and, and rolling on very slowly. Um, but there's also other designs where some um, use digital tracing technologies. So people um, either being paid for by survey companies or voluntarily signing up to install, say during an election campaign, a browser plugin, um, which then anonymously kind of tracks what sort of political ads they saw on Facebook or what sorts of political content they saw or what websites they browsed and news they consumed. Um, but again, here you're at a really difficult situation because you can um, collect such data, but you have very strict both legal and, and ethical standards as a, as a researcher. And I always like to um, say if I wanted to design the perfect causal experiment for for my core research question of interest, 
um, the perfect gold standard design would be, I take um, a set of American Facebook users, I somewhat somehow target them with ads with completely false and misleading information about a political context. Then I would um, take their Facebook profile, match it with their publicly available voter record and um, check if they if I successfully uh, interfered with their voting decision for my for my experiment experimental design. But of course, as I as I'm telling the story, you you already have noticed that this is crossing every uh, at least ethical, uh, I'm not even so sure le legal line in the United States, but obviously every ethical red line that you would ever want to uh, try to do and, and manipulate people's real decision with a real outcome like this. So you're much more limited and have to find alternative solutions, try to maybe met voluntarily match people's browsing history with survey data or um, find some lucky or clever natural experiments of some, maybe in some region people had more ad blockers installed or something like that. But it's really difficult because frankly, hundreds of different um, factors influence an election uh, decision um, and, and social media usage patterns are also heavily correlated with individuals' political attitudes and behaviors. And you have these strict data access problems as well as ethical boundaries, which make uh, research in this in this field um, really difficult. And I haven't even started touching upon the whole issue of detecting um, de detecting sources and forms of inauthentic behavior and inauthentic coordination on Twitter. The huge questions about um, the buzzword of bots: what is a bot? When when is an account a bot? How, how do we decide that? Can we even ever surely decide it? Or do we always just have to approximate some characteristics of pet behavior patterns that might indicate um, uh, such patterns? And then once you identify something to then even attribute it to a certain state actor, you I, almost have to be really lucky, really good, or like, be an intelligence agency, which which we obviously are, uh, aren't. So a lot of challenges, but um, but I, I can report it's really uh, uh, fun and also motivating to see how these these challenges are directly impacting um, democratic processes and and through that um, lives around the globe. Um, and that's. And that's therefore a, a recompensation for the methodological struggles that you have to deal with. Yeah, and I guess it's it might be a methodological struggle, but it's like a really important struggle to overcome because this data is potentially so so important to know. I guess for not only just from the pure research perspective of really wanting to know what is going on there, but as you mentioned, these there seems to be large interest by the. Um, by the FBI, for example, or the NSA to, to really understand what's going on, because <laughs> always it's not only about yeah, what's happening on these platforms it might be interesting, but it's some form of Cold War happening or some kind of power struggle going on there. So I guess it's really important to know that. Do you think it's there's this kind of research also going on in the, in the agencies by the government and they probably have more leeway when it comes to really pursuing the most ethical <laughs> path down there. 
um definitely yeah i mean i've i've i have a little history of working um in other contexts also for um governments or or international defense organizations so i i certainly know that they're interested in such topics as, as well um but um certainly you can expect that that uh, governments sometimes have other other um methodological approaches interests but again um probably also face some of the similar um methodological challenges because they themselves also um i'm very confident don't get full access to to facebook's database of what users exposed to what content and whether they went to vote afterwards mm. but they might have more money to run surveys or something is that like one big project you're working on currently or are there a couple of different things you're looking at um i am currently working on a, a paper on um on on chinese overt messaging so so not like covert operations of false accounts but on simply looking at chinese diplomats and and state media accounts on 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 different platforms and how they were trying to shape narratives around generally us domestic politics but in particularly also the last election um and then one paper we're writing with a large team um I'm leading at the moment is on on Russian and Chinese um, misinformation around uh, COVID nineteen vaccines. Some of the themes I've noted earlier, both promoting their own ones as well as uh, just trying to discredit the the vaccines being produced and and distributed by by Western countries. And more long termish, I'm like um, working on these effects questions, trying to design new statistical approaches and methodology to infer effects of exposure to problematic content online on individuals attitudes voting behavior um and other forms of of political behavior and, and real life actions so is it maybe to to get a bit into the details is it like really a question then of data collection just to to grab some kind of data from these platforms and then really develop the algorithms from from scratch to to infer some kind of uh, correlations and patterns in there yeah so data access of course crucial um and and especially with a landscape where where people are are moving um um and and not saying that that facebook is is going to become unimportant anytime soon but we see already hundreds of thousands of probably millions of people moving to parla or parler and, and communicating over there uh, where where we're years behind in in say building collaborations between industry and researchers and and maybe the will for that will never even be there um but in the case of the big platforms, it's a mix of using publicly available APIs made available to researchers where you can uh, collect data um, uh, paired with uh, trying to build collaborations with, with these platforms, um, always keeping in mind that you have to find these collaborations in a way that ensures that you can you can publish your results no matter what they will be. So it's very important to not have to clear something 
for publication from a platform if you agree into, say, a data sharing agreement, because it epistemologically, um, quoting Gary King, a, a leading a quantitative social scientist from Harvard here, it basically renders your your research epistemologically worthless if people who read it know that it would not have been published if it had had to be cleared by a tech platform first, for example. Um, and there's, there's a debate starting and going on at the moment that uh, I haven't dived into it very deep yet, but about this very this very thing about uh, the freedom of publishing, but within a company from, uh, I think at Google at the moment. Uh, it's also very interesting. Um, and then secondly, once you have some data, you always, um, uh, as I'm not trying to do just replicate descriptive research as others have done in the past, but try to answer causal questions about effect on, on individuals, I'll probably have to also set up some, some survey designs that kind of match um, people's voluntarily agreed of course, and 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 with very high hurdles of 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 informed consent and through GDPR and and very strict ethics review at Oxford, um, get people to to combine their web browsing data with survey responses, um, um, to to try to like both observe what people are doing on the internet and and link that maybe also in a temporal structure with their behaviors and attitudes, and maybe run some experiments as well in a separated lab context where you present um, respondents with different realistically looking content, propaganda, false information, whatever, and and understand kind of the psychological processes in within the political opinion formation process of how exactly it shapes, what effect, um, fact checks that maybe are depicted below an, an, a piece of information have on on the credibility of the piece and how it affects the, the respondent's opinion. So a, a mix of that combined with some natural experiments maybe, um, but in the end gonna be a constant struggle to, to uh, achieve as much as of a causal claim as you can while always having to have huge proactively honest limitation sections about all the potential things you can't measure. Yeah. I'm now a bit mindful of your time. This has been already incredibly interesting, but we've been going on for quite some time. So maybe to, to slowly lead this to some kind of conclusion, um, Maybe on a more pragmatic note, what do you think? It's, it's a very open question, but what do you think uh, institutions like the European Union, for example, what steps can they initiate to to further or to, to kind of get the upper hand or to, to keep on to keep up with these, these technological developments and this global shifting information landscape? So you mentioned GDPR with respect to to privacy rights of, of individuals, but like more on a kind of strategic level i think that the the eu is aware at least to some degree of the issue and is starting to take to think about what to do i think just a few days ago the eu 
commission and one of its vice presidents um, announced that they would try to produce some new measures uh, in in countering especially foreign disinformation. Um, I think as Western governments and and including the EU, uh, an important thing they can and should do to counter such foreign state-backed attempts to to sow discord and interfere in Western public opinion is to expose it. Um, um, adapting from, from a military context, I, I, I sometimes like to call it deterrence through exposure. If, you, if you're able to impose cost on, on an information operation run by the Russian government or by the Chinese government by simply um, transparently exposing it, um, you've already, um, uh, to some degree, the decreased its efficacy. Yet on the other hand, we've also recently seen that, um, to some degree, f- such state actors also like others to overestimate their capabilities, at least. Um, so, so Russia in the past has um, sometimes try to um, create an impression to be able maybe to replicate what they did in 2016 or do do even more to to scare to scare westerners and to make them think um, that that a russian bot is basically everywhere around the corner so it's very difficult to have a clear <laughs> opinion there but i still believe that transparency and like trying to detect as much as we can is a solution for for parts of this to deter such foreign efforts. Um, domestically, it's it's much more difficult to um, to to find good solutions to that that don't overregulate and and censor and introduce unnecessary censorship. And I think, uh, although it's a huge field and and there's no definitive solution, but one important step will be to um, kind of. Uh, work together with tech companies to take their concerns um, uh, seriously, but also not not let ourselves fooled um, by um, by their concerns. Um, often, interf- their kind of methodological concerns of how to best uh, police content and how best mo- how to best moderate content, not have them inter- interfere with their own um, uh, commercial and financial interests uh, and and kind of trying to better distinguish there. Because here we see that um, many people, even including from within Facebook and other tech companies, have often claimed that while they're appearing to invest a lot into, um, into the uh, integrity and... and informational health of their platforms it's still a minor share of their total budget it's heavily concentrated only in high attention democracies such as the us or big european democracies often neglecting other parts of 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 the world um in terms of resource allocation and um and here it will just be important to take the concern seriously with regards to how to best effectively design um, moderation guidelines and policies, but also take into account um, platforms adjust legislation to at least the standards we have for analog and and print media, um, 
and and um, be proactive and ideally coherent here. So if, for example, the UK, the EU, and the US could could work together and 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 pull pull with one uh, pull on, on one side of the rope here, that would maybe already be helpful. But always remaining conscious of of the global perspective of the issue and not forgetting other places with less political lobby or leveraging power towards these tech platforms. Yeah, that's uh, with respect to Facebook, that's, I think, a very interesting point because there's inherently a conflict of interest because Facebook's business model has been so reliant on on screen time and grabbing the attention and the algorithms that Facebook uses to, uh, to maximize um, screen time by the users then kind of naturally develop this tendency of showing of escalating the content towards outrage. And this has been much talked about in recent years, but I think Mark Zuckerberg then at, at one point also said that uh, they, they shouldn't be in, in controlled by, by state legislation because they are the only people that can solve this problem. And that seemed to be a little like hypocritical when, it, when looking at the effect Facebook probably had in the two, 2016 election and their complete inability to, to really deal with the problem. So I think uh, it's it's an important point to uh, not be too uh, to kind of force the, the these tech companies in a way to to really tackle the problem and not only pretend to tackle the problem but really uh, in parallel run through with their business model that that's not helping in in making any any of these things better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally agree there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah. I think we maybe we can wrap it up now here. Yeah, it, it was a really very fascinating conversation. So thanks a lot again for, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. Um, maybe we can talk again in, in a few years what, once I've done all this, what I, what I described, I maybe want to do <laughs> report on some results. I mean, definitely, I think this problem isn't going away and you, your PhD will be very irrelevant. So I will definitely come back to you and we can do this again.